This is the European Tour's Life on Tour podcast, presented by Hilton. Hello and welcome to the European Tour's Life on Tour podcast, presented by Hilton, with me, Andrew Cotter, bringing you conversations with key figures from around the world of golf. Today we are at Hilton's Conrad St James Hotel in the heart of London, and I'm delighted to say we've been joined by one of the most respected figures in the world of golf for over 20 years. He was a driving force at IMD, and fairly recently he's made the move to the European Tour. Deputy CEO and Ryder Cup Director at the European Tour, Guy Kennings. That's a long introduction for you. Is that, are, you are you happy with that? Very happy with that. You almost got the title right, but it was close. It what was, was that? Oh, no, what have I got? What I'm also I... the Chief Commercial Officer. Oh, right. Sorry, I didn't. Uh, hang on a second. Let me do that again. We're not going to edit it, though. I'm just going to do it again. <laughs> so, uh, please welcome the Deputy CEO, Chief Commercial Officer and Ryder Cup Director at the European Tour. His business card is massive. Guy Kennings, welcome. Morning, Mrs. Carter. Hello. How are you? What is your brief, then? Because it's a long title, but I mean, what is your day-to-day job at the, at the European Tour? It, as you probably guess, it's quite varied. The original premise was to come in and work on the Ryder Cup because Richard Hill's done a wonderful job for about 25 years. And so it's the first opportunity there was for someone new to come in there. So uh, when the tour contacted me with that opportunity, that in itself was pretty interesting. And then after a little while of talking to David Williams and to Keith Pelly, they decided that give me a bit more of a roving brief, so created the sort of deputy CEO role, which allows me to kind of get involved in almost all things and annoy people without enormous responsibility. And then, uh, I guess, a few months ago, the opportunity to take on the commercial side came along, which is more broadly along the lines of what I've done in the past at IMG and working with players' events and other things. We're going to go back to the past, back to even beyond IMG, because it's a fascinating career, but we like to get to know the people and their history and their lives. So where did it all begin? I'd like to imagine I can hear a sort of Ozzy Osbourne twang in there. I can't, but you are from the black country. Absolutely. Proudly born and bred in Wolverhampton, but moved out into Shropshire, went to school in Shrewsbury. So yeah, formative years definitely in the Midlands, which I loved, and then sort of gradually edged south, went to university and ended up in London working. Are you a Wolves fan? I am. Absolutely. Are you a Fairweather fan or are you a die No, 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 I've I've been, I've loyally stuck with them throughout, through thick and thin. You know, I'm not as loyal as a Peter Baker or someone like that who has really been there, season tickets, because, but I have always supported them, even when surrounded in London, in, shall we say, their fallow years, when my kids all started sort of supporting Chelsea. In fact, I sent one of the boys out in a Wolves shirt for an under-sixes game of football. And he did come back going, Dad, why is everyone wearing blue and red and these nice ones? Why am I wearing this? So in the end, he had to go and get a a Chelsea shirt. But no, I've stuck with them. You explained to us that because you're not a glory hunter, you are true to your roots. to your roots. You went to Oxford to study law. Was law, was it something you really wanted to do or was it just seen as a a good career choice? What was the decision behind that? I guess at the time, I wasn't absolutely sure what I wanted to do. I mean, I'd had a great time at school. I'd studied classics and things like that, which obviously put you in great stead for future life. And I didn't know what I was going to go on to. And law, I felt closed, fewer doors than anything else. It was a great basic training. So I'd enjoyed that, and I'd studied there, and I'd gone on articled and worked in the city, which was brilliant for a big law firm there. And it was kind of interesting, because when I then went to look at IMG, and I hadn't read it before, was then told I probably should, McCormack had written a book called sort of What They Don't Teach You at Harvard Business School, which basically said a law degree is every bit as useful as like an MBA. 
And you know, I've, I've skipped over your very earliest job, which was before university. Was it a summer of working as a welder? Is that well? No, every summer it was. Uh, in, oh, in, in, well, not quite every summer, obviously not when I was sort of four. But it, once I was into my teenage years, the old man who used to work in a sheet metal factory in the heart of the Black Country in Solihull used to make me go and my brother go and sit and work on the shop floor, which was the greatest training in life there has ever been. And we used to produce all sorts of things. I remember they were. I think they were lockers for an RAF camp, and I was as useless at welding as I've proven to be at many other things. And I had to learn very fast with a fantastic local who kind of suffered the you know, public school prat and sort of basically trained me up. And we did that, yeah, and it was just the best lessons in life I ever gained. Was this the local who found out that you were a lawyer or thought you were a lawyer and thought that you might be able to help him in his... Uh, in his... Yes, that is exactly right. So when he said to me, so y'all going to read law? And I went, oh, yes, I am. He said, oh, I'm in court. And so I thought he looked very nice. I said, road, road traffic act. And he went, no, GBH. So it turned out that there was a backstory and it was a misunderstanding and he was sorting it out. And I'm sure he came through it very clearly. But it, at that moment, I did. There we go. Of course, it was a misunderstanding. Anyway, could you, so if I produced an acetylene torch just now and then two bits of metal, would you be able to, would you still be able to weld? Oh, absolutely. I mean, whatever you'd like it turned into. It'd be extraordinary, like a sort of moment of metal origami. It could be in you know, like a <laughs> peacock swan or locker. Okay. We'll try and fashion something. Yeah, um, yeah. So you mentioned the great man Mark McCormack because you, you went to work in the legal department yeah. of IMG. And what, what did you know of IMG at the time? I mean, obviously they were and have been for a long time the behemoths of the management stable. Yeah, I mean, I knew of them. I, I knew of them anyway. And a couple of great mates of mine who we'd all been you know, training either at, at Oxford or at law school and we'd, we'd gone off to different firms. And so there were two or three mates of mine who worked in the city and then moved out there. Um, and I had sort of stuck it out, finished articles and was looking forward to mergers and acquisitions and good things like that at the time of Big Bang, which was a pretty interesting time and, and had loved my time at at Freshfields. But the guys said to me, hey, listen, you know, they're looking for lawyers down at IMG. So I had a look into it. And at that stage, then started reading some of McCormack's books. And, you know, he was, he was a visionary. He was absolutely brilliant. I mean, if you read his books, there is nothing in there that isn't just kind of adapted common sense, but it really is good common sense. And so the chance to go and work with him, with a lot of very, very fun people, I mean, the business was then pretty small and in growth mode, even though he'd set it up in the 60s. It was just kind of just growing in London. So it was an unbelievable time to be there. Just to give a bit of background to it, I mean, most people listening to this will have a good idea of what IMG was and how it came about, but it was essentially Mark McCormack and Arnold Palmer and a handshake between the two. Absolutely. I mean, it was literally done. Mark was on the range beside Arnie. Mark was a good enough golfer, I'm certainly not, but he was a good enough golfer to play in, I think it was the US Open, as an amateur. And he stood next to Arnie and he was conscious that someone was doing something slightly different to his left than what he was doing. And he was hitting it quite nicely and someone was just powering it out there, different sound, everything. So he turned around, ended up in a conversation with Arnie. They got on incredibly well. And Arnie, in his utterly charming way, basically pointed out that he was getting a bit tired of all these phone calls and letters and things from nice people offering to do stuff, which he couldn't be bothered or hadn't got time to deal with. So Mark, you know, light bulb moment, thought, lawyer, maybe I could help Arnie, handshake. And he started from there. And, you know, he could not have started with a better person. You know, Arnie, who was changing the way people saw golf, you know, the common man with the charm and the charisma. He was just cool. And so Mark started with the right guy. And then either because there was not many others doing it, in fact, no others doing it, or because he was smart, which he was that as well, then signed 
you know, Jack and Gary, and they went into tennis and signed Rod Laver, and went to skiing, signed Keeley, motor racing, did Jackie Stewart. So he owned that and, and was, you know, worked close with Ali and worked with Sean Connery and people like that. So it was exactly the right time for him, and he created this agency, which he got was built around talent. It was around the players. And then from there, you can grow out an event business built around that. You can build out a media business and then you go global. He was brilliant. So this is the company you joined in 89, but working in the legal department. So how did you make the transition then to working in golf management? Was that something that you had wanted to do? Well, when I arrived, having done all this sort of corporate stuff, the lawyers, they did do lots of clever stuff. But if it was really tricky stuff, you'd take it out of house. So we basically produced a lot of contracts. And I was working primarily on golf and tennis and fashion. And in that stage, some classical music. Well, I know... As you can see, nothing about fashion, less about classical music. Tennis was great, but we had just, Mark had signed, and, and the guys in golf had signed this generation, this unique generation of those guys who were all born within a year of each other. And we didn't get them all, but Norman, Price, Faldo, Langer, Lyle, Woosnam were all clients. And I used to work with them as a lawyer. So I had, I think, what was probably the only career talk I ever had in my life, where I went in to see a senior guy, I think it was Ian Todd, who said, you don't want to be a lawyer you want to go manage those guys? I said, oh, okay. So off we went, and I started working with, with Sandy and with Woozy, and then I did other clients. It was that scientific. I mean, the first player that I recognised you as being with was obviously Monty. When did you join up with Colin Montgomery? Well, I didn't sign Monty. Monty was already a client. But I think he and VJ were signed as sort of younger guys, and they were, at that stage, we had that. I mean, you can imagine, you've got Faldo, Langer, Lyle, Woosnam, I mean, they, with Seve, they'd won everything. And so... Monty was just, I think, kind of stepping up. You know, he just started and he was beginning to be a dominant force on the tour. So I think they decided he needed someone who could work more focused on him. So I was presented in front of him and given a trial period, which he was very conscious of. I mean, he was like, well, we'll see how you go. And so I was given a chance to work with him and we got on pretty well and it worked well. What were your first impressions of Colin? What I always say with Monty is that because on occasions... People have an impression of what Colin Montgomery might be like. And I had that same impression. So I went in thinking, he's going to be quite a tough guy. He, I can see how hard he is on himself. And I was, as I kept saying to him, it's a, it's a really nice reaction for people to have because people are constantly surprised when they meet him. Because what you do meet is someone who is charming and articulate and interested and interesting. And we got on really well. And absolutely, as you would, I'm sure, would say, there were moments when, you know, his high standards and, you know, would push him pretty hard. I mean, he would get, on occasions, borderline cross. But actually, when you dealt with him on a business side, it was very good because Mm. he trusted in you, gave you the chance to go and do what you wanted to do and was very good, has always been brilliant with corporates. You were most often just out with him. Did you have other players at the time where he was the dominant player? For no, you? I, started, I, I started out on the tour with Sandy and with Woozy and was working with them and enjoyed that and then started working with Monty and then started signing other younger guys. I mean, was involved with signing Retief and Thomas Bjorn and a bunch of other younger guys. But he became sort of very much the talisman for Europe. And to get the chance to work with someone who won, you know, that many order of merits. And everyone always used to say to Monty, you know, what would you prefer? Would you have wanted one moment in the sun with a major? Or would you have had, effectively, 20 years of reasonable dominance? And he would always have taken the latter. As he said, you know, it's the Premier League, it's the Championship. So he enjoyed being in competition week in, week out. And that was therefore a good thing, because you were able to go out and go to the events knowing you were dealing with someone who would be one of the big pulls 
and you could then build events and other things around it. So it was fantastic. It gave me a great opportunity to have a chance to work with all of those guys, working with him in his pomp and a bunch of other guys when they played so well. And what was a manager's or is it manager or agent? A manager. Mark always said manager. I like manager. Mm. We are agents. But let's be honest, manager sounds a bit better. Mm. What would be a manager's duties then? And with Colin Montgomery throughout the you know, late 1990s, what, what would you be doing with him and for him? The, the, if I was sitting pitching to a player in those days, you would say, you go and play and do what you're brilliant at. Go out, practice, play, and then enjoy the benefits of that and have a nice family life and whatever else. We will do everything else around that. So whether that is the important day-to-day organization, getting you to, from events, handling personal life. In those days, we used to work on the financial side. That then got quite rightly moved out of house. And then generate income off the course. And in those days, it was a really interesting one because prize money levels are huge now. But you've got to remember back then and and before then, which is why Arnie first took the game around the world, if you managed it in the right way, you could generate very significant income in terms of sponsorship, appearances, licensing, merch, and things like that around the big players that would, on occasions, rival, if not generate more than people would make in prize money, even when they were playing well. What would be the most interesting time with Monty? Because, again, my first uh, sort of recollection of you would be, as it would be for a lot of members of the media, would be there would be a sort of Monty-shaped cloud where he had been uh, offering the clubhouse, and you were then left to pacify or placate or say, don't worry, he'll come back for a chat in a minute. But, you know, he was... Well, as you well know, the media, it didn't matter if it was 63 or 78, they wanted Monty in there because he was just great value. And the thought process, I always used to say to him, it's like a cathartic experience. So occasionally you'd end up talking about golf, but more often than not, it would be a stream of consciousness about anything that you could direct him to. So the truth was more often than not, actually... The guys enjoyed the experience, as you can imagine. It was, you know, if they'd said, oh, I said, I've steered him away, he's not coming in. It wouldn't have been good for him, it wouldn't have been good for them. So, one, it was actually really rather entertaining doing that. But in terms of, you know, handling that, that was the day-to-day stuff you would do. You would help to grow a brand, help build someone's image and reputation. And the truth is, there's no point trying to create something that isn't there. What you have to do is focus on those positives, draw them out. He was always absolutely brilliant on, on, on a business side and entertaining in the sense. And I remember people saying, well, why wouldn't you go and get media training and get him to be much more guarded in the press centres? And I said, well, what, and ruin all the fun? I mean, it wouldn't have been him, and it would have destroyed most of the then golf media's fun. Of, you know, hey, he's, he's coming in, let's, you know, and they did, they loved it. Yeah, but after a long time working with him, you obviously become very close to him as well. Your friends, as, yeah. as much as work colleagues, and again, there would have been difficult times, and the most difficult one on the course would have been Winged Foot, two thousand and six. So, how do you, when something has happened that he's just has lost it at the very last, yeah. do you just stand back, or do you try and talk to him, or do you placate him? Because, well, as you know, I mean, the the, the job to do there is, it, it, I always say to the guys when I was managing, you know, players. They're not paying you to be a friend. They should have their friends. You are there to do a job. But you do inevitably. And I've been incredibly lucky with Monty and with a lot of the other guys I've worked very closely with. Thomas Retief, Paul Casey, you know, Luke, guys like that. I've got close with them. I got very close with Monty. And at that moment, where, as you rightly say, that was, a, that was a bad moment. I mean, I'd had a lot of fantastic moments. Let's be honest, you know, standing back of a team, someone who wins a lot, whatever. It's, it's nice. But that was a tough one. And so I had reasonable confidence that there would be an array of people like um, psychologists and coaches and caddies ready to assist in this process. But they seemed to have sort of been distracted somewhere else. So it was him and me in the, in the locker room. And however smart someone is, you don't actually have the words 
for a moment like that. I mean, that, that's not the moment to sort of go, let me just remind you why overall your career has been really, really good and we'll look back and laugh about this because that's not going to work. So I think I was, even by my low standards, below par on that, but I was saying something and I was there and we were talking and at that stage, the one thing I wanted to do was just get him away. So I remember I had a car ready to get him to the airport. I would have been very happy to cancel it, but... As it was, we needed it, so we got into the car and headed towards the airport. And I, d- I think it was probably more for me, but I think it was also for him. At that stage, I realised that Bonte was very good, very rarely drank much, um, except like Cokes. So we stopped to get a drink, and I lied to my back teeth. I remember stumbling back into the car with him, going, no, they hadn't got any. Absolutely no soft drinks. No, no Coke at all? Not, none whatsoever oh, on sale. Amazing. It was extraordinary. Amazing. And only thing they've got are some buds and a bottle of something slightly stronger, which I managed to get him reluctantly to consume, which I think just about took the edge off it a bit. So you got him hammered, right? Correct. I understand. Yeah. Uh, responsible management. Yeah, so, no, <laughs> it's, as you say, management at its finest. Sometimes it's necessary. I mean... You've been front and centre at so many great golfing events, and the dominant figure throughout much of your career of management was Tiger Woods, and he was with IMG on the other side of the Atlantic. I mean, Mark Steinberg was on one side of the Atlantic running things, and and you were eventually on this side of the Atlantic running things. So what were your dealings with Tiger and with Mark Steinberg? When Tiger first signed with us, neither Mark or I were involved. It was Mark and it was Alistair Johnson. It was Hughes Norton who worked with him originally. And, you know, as I sort of say to everyone, he was, from the moment, before he signed with us, he was a phenomenon. I mean, he'd he'd done things that were extraordinary and he quickly became almost every bit as as much of an icon as we thought he could be. And as I've always said, there's nobody works in the business, whether player or what I do, what you do anyway, that shouldn't when we see Tiger go up and shake him by the hand because he's changed the game. What Arnie did to popularise the sport, Tiger took it to a new level, commercially and in every way. And he was a huge, huge influence in taking the game to people who would never have seen it before. So what we did was, by the time that Mark took on the management, which he did the huge amount of the heavy lifting, I was a sort of happy to help and support when it was outside of the US. It was just a, you know, it was a privilege to work on an account like that with someone who was, in the same way, working with an Arnie or someone like that, you, you got to work with someone who was changing the game. Did you notice it immediately? I mean, we all know that prize money increased fairly early in Tiger Woods' career just because of the star attraction he had. But did you notice it as well in deals that you were able to do with companies for just more money coming in in general? Absolutely. When when he first came out, I remember people being interviewed going, this guy could be amazing. You know, he could make X, of course, next year when he turns pro. And I think deals were then signed, which were probably 10 times X. Just figures that had never been talked about in golf. They were very, very fine golfers. But he was just different. Nike, Phil Knight, realised he, in one guy, was going to build them a brand in the sport. And, and they paid accordingly. So, for sure. And it lifted everything for everyone. Absolutely. Endorsement income increased. Prize money levels increased. Media rights would increase because people wanted to see him. When he played in an event, it changed it. So, he was... You know, when had golf ever before had the global iconic athlete on the planet. You know, you'll have your list of whoever you think fits within that description, and I've got one or two where you'd have an Ali and Michael Jordan, whatever else. But we had Tiger Woods, and he was the biggest athlete on the planet, and he did things differently. And I can remember someone said if he hadn't been born as he was, you know, McCormack would have created him in a lab Mm. because he was just ideal for that, and he did change the game. And eventually Tiger Woods went his own way, left IMG, Mm -hmm. and the sort of management aspect of golf has splintered a little bit. IMG is still a dominant figure there, but then oh, I could li- reel off any number of them. I mean, ISM was hugely successful for a long, long time with many players. So 
What was that like when you realised that you weren't the only player on the block suddenly, that there were lots of other factors? To be honest, it was almost inevitable. It happens in every sport. We had a virtual monopoly. I mean, Mark had started it, he created the business. I remember going to a Ryder Cup, I think, at the Belfry, and we managed nine or ten of the players, captain and vice-captain. I mean, you could never do that now. Players want to have their own guys, so there is a much more fragmented marketplace. And that's fine, because players now want to have one-on-one, the individual managers and whatever else. And that's the nature of the sport, and of sport in itself. So I don't think there was an issue with that. You almost knew that. But the important thing was to evolve. So whilst we were strong in client management and had a good roster... We then grew out the event business. Because if you have great players, either under management or great relationships with players who you don't have under management, you can build great events around the world. And you can then publicise them. And then you can grow out every other bit of the business, develop the corporate side and whatever else, and turn golf into a proper business. So IMG at that stage then grew more into events and media and every other aspect. We were about sort of 15 different areas that we worked in within the sport. And that was great for me because that allowed me to do other things that I wouldn't just have done. I loved being manager, agent, whichever we decide to call it. I still remember phoning home to tell my mum that after 11 years of legal training, I was going off to be an agent. (laughs) She went very quiet, and all I could hear, Dad, in the background going, can I get some tickets? It allowed you to do stuff, so that it kept evolving. And so IMG in golf became something that was involved in almost every aspect of the sport. I suppose the reason we talk about manager or agent, which word do you prefer, is because agent has connotations of football agent and negative connotations. And do you see a little bit of that perhaps creeping into golf? Because there's so much money in golf and there are many people who might think, ah, I would like a piece of that pie and I could be a golf manager. I think that's right. I mean, there's an element to which you want people bringing money into the sport, not taking it out. There are people who are very good and very scrupulous and do a wonderful job, as there are in every other sport and every other business. There are those that are less so. I think that the truth is that the role has changed Because, as I said, when we were doing this and when we like to say manager was because you could build out a commercial program that if you manage... At the end of the day, what's the most important thing? That players fulfil their potential. They win as many tournaments, as many majors, play in Ryder Cups, do all of this. At the end of the day, you want them to be happy. You want them to manifest all of that into a nice lifestyle and, and whatever else and be secure for life. Those are the goals. But you could help with that on a commercial side very much by building this whole program. To be honest, now that's still the case and people do amazing jobs in terms of building brands and licensing. But right now there is so much money in the prize money Mm. that the most important thing for players is to stay fit, stay healthy, get their schedule right so that they can play the right events and win the big events. And that's what they'll be remembered for. I suppose you look at Tiger Woods, I think, I guess I'd love to have managed him, but he was for a while in the IMG stable. Mm. But one person who's never been in the IMG stable is Rory McIlroy. And was it close to... I mean, he's been very interesting off the course because he's gone through various different mm, managers. He's mm. always made strong decisions. Mm, mm. But uh, were IMG close to, to getting him? I don't think we were, no. We obviously talked to him and would love to have signed him. And I remember having a conversation also at the same time as lovely chap Ollie Fisher. They were the two young amateurs mm. coming through him, signed Ollie, and Rory went to Chubby. And, you know, he's a character you'd have loved to have worked with because he's fascinating. You know, he's a character. He adds so much to every event. And, you know, you do list that. You go, who are the people you didn't get a chance to work with I'd have loved to work with him took a while to finally get there with Ernie and who did which was great and never got to work with Seve and I remember McCormack always saying you know the players he wished he could have worked with Seve would have been one of them because he was just whilst Tiger did something that was had never been done before Seve was as we all know anyone who saw him I've never I don't think I've ever met anyone who had as much charisma and filled the room and you knew where he was and he was remarkable and 
you would have loved to have had a chance to do something with that. I mean, I'm just glad I got to know him a little bit and knew the family. And we did some things with him, which were just fantastic, but not in a sense of working with someone on their career. Yeah. What would be your fondest memory from your... We'll move on to European tour in a moment, but from your IMG career greatest success or fondest moment from from your managerial career there's just something magical about when someone wins something that is going to change their lives and they've worked towards that moment and they get there and they do it so you know being around when Monty won one of his multiple order of merits and knowing how much that meant to him being there when Retief won his first major when Pordre won his majors and being there with him drinking out of the claret jug or whatever I mean one that was brilliant was when Henrik won the Open Mm. and I was chatting to him afterwards and I said hey do everything you like yeah whatever if you want to be with the family but if you want to come back to our base you know you're welcome and he said oh I'll probably take over a quiet evening he said oh no I'll come over so he came over and I have never seen anyone more generous with their time now granted you just won the Open so you would be but he was absolutely wonderful and people descended on that Mm. tent and it was from everyone, from the people who'd worked in the office to the Swedish media, whatever, we had a you know, just fantastic evening. He uh, ranks pretty high on the list of everybody who, who has had dealings with him, yeah. most popular player, is that fair to say? He's just got that wonderfully surprising, dry sense of humour that you don't spot immediately and then you just realise how much value it is. Yeah, he's, he's, and we're hugely lucky. I mean, not only with, you know, generally, not just clients, people who I've worked with on the tour in, in different capacities. We've got some really great people who are you know fun to deal with and you have magic moments I'm sure we'll talk about the Ryder Cup but you know being there on Sunday night with Thomas and those sort of guys was just amazing but Henrik when you think this guy is as dry and as funny in his second language I mean it is remarkable yeah he's a great ambassador for European golf and has you know is, is huge value well let's move then to the Europe why did you make the decision first of all to move to the European tour after I'm, I'm doing the maths here after almost 30 years of it was it was I was nearly there yeah and I loved IMG I couldn't have had a better time as you can see the role evolved so when people were going as we were bought by different people and went through different iterations I could see there was a sort of look of, you've been here how long I mean, it was like, really, have you no ambition? But the truth was, the role kept evolving. And so, you know, I was doing, I couldn't have wanted for more. I kept doing the things I wanted to do, working with great people. It was brilliant. But I had got to know David Williams and Keith a little bit at the tour. And they'd been lovely and kept in touch and talked about it. And I think um, when the opportunity arose, it was primarily around the Ryder Cup. They were looking for someone to take on the Ryder Cup role because Richard was going to be standing down. And having seen everything that I thought I could see, and I've been just blessed in the game, there is something magical about the Ryder Cup. And to be given the chance to work on what is maybe the biggest and best thing. I mean, we've got wonderful majors, and I don't see to compare, but the Ryder Cup is something utterly unique in the game of golf. And almost it's at its best. And have the chance to not just work on it, but oversee that from our side, from the European side, was Almost too good an opportunity. And then they were great. They then said, well, maybe, you know, with all of these decades Mm. stuff, is kind of useful. Maybe that can help. Because, you know, Keith's a fantastic CEO, a visionary and whatever else. But I can help with a lot of the knowledge and the context and people like that. So then I came in. So they said, right, Ryder Cup, deputy CEO. And now getting the chance to get involved in almost all of what we do, and the commercial side particularly, it's a fantastic brief. And it, so I'm, I'm, you know, I am lucky. I've gone from somewhere I really love to somewhere I really love. I mean, it is, it's fantastic. How is the commercial side of it? I mean, how is the state of the game? Because obviously you wouldn't make the move if you didn't think there were potential for development and expansion, whereas lots of people looking from the outside would say, well, the PGA Tour is the dominant tour in golf, 
And where does the European tour fit in that in the, in the years to come? Well, I think there's sort of two questions in there. For me, one, I was looking primarily at the Ryder Cup, where I thought, and I saw, because I was lucky enough that two weeks in, I got to go what, with what could have been maybe, the, some say, the best European Ryder Cup we've seen. I mean, fantastic event. And yet there's, I believe, so much more that can be done there. So what, you're dealing with something which is already fantastic that can be even better. Then you look at the game as a whole, and, you know, People will always be critical about the game. I don't think golf always necessarily tells its story as well as it can. You know, bases focus around you know participation. You've got to have gone and played eighteen holes at a club in the last week. Well, actually, people play golf and in games in a different way. You layer in the impact that Eric Anderson and Top Golf are having, uh, and and it participation and suddenly inclusivity and, and women in playing in the golf and juniors. The game's actually in a healthier state than than people think in terms of growth. In terms of it's always punched above its weight in this ability to appeal to business and to top brands and to the right sort of demographic. And you're absolutely right. PGA Tour are a huge strength and they do a wonderful job. We've got four majors. You've got amazing things that Augusta do and the RNA and PGA and USGA. You've got some fantastic assets. But what it does is it leaves space for us, the European Tour, to do things in a slightly different way. We are wonderfully lucky. We've got great players. They don't play here every week, but they come back enough for the big events that matter. But we've got diversity in you know, cultures. You've got growth in areas that we've been able to grow into on the innovation side, different formats. We've been able to be inclusive. You can do mixed events. You've had mixed ability. We've had the you know, dis- disabled golfers playing alongside and in some cases beating able-bodied golfers. That sort of stuff is transformational, and we're international. You know, we've got so many different markets we go into. So actually, the European tour as a property, you know, kind of knows its place, is growing in the areas that it can. So it can work alongside very healthily and happily with the PGA Tour. The PGA Tour has kind of focused its product. That leaves a lot of room for people to do other things and do them in a slightly different way, which I think is good for the game. Bring, brings people in if you do it slightly differently. Well, you mentioned that there, though, the, the, the sort of talent, brain drain, talent yeah. leak to the PGA Tour. Inevitably, the biggest players are going to say, well, that might be where my future lies. Do you see the future being one tour, a bit of clarity in the game, a world tour? I mean, we have a very strong identity, and you're absolutely right. It's a global game now. And the best players want to take the opportunity to go and play in the best events they possibly can. And a lot of those are on the PGA Tour, and no one has any problem with that. You want those, the players to go fulfil and achieve everything they can in the game, and you support that. If we do our job right, then there will be enough good events in Europe and on the European Tour that will attract players back to play. And they have been very supportive. If you have a look at the players who come and played, both European and US players who come and played in events earlier in the year, Middle East, well, there'll be some coming up. The field at Wentworth this year will be fantastic. Mm. You know, we will have a huge number of the global European players. We'll have a lot of American players coming over. Patrick Reeds, Tony Fina, Billy Horschels, you've got Xander Schaffler, you've got Matt Kuchar playing in Porsche in a couple of weeks. You know, you will have, you know, international players. So it's our job to make sure that there is enough quality events to come and play and also to provide interesting and exciting events for the players. And we have a huge talent pool, players who are coming up and growing and coming into these events. And, you know, if they end up playing sometimes in the States, sometimes in Europe, you don't have a problem, as long as they play enough to keep the game global. And to your point about 
should there be a global tool? You know, if someone sat down with a blank sheet of paper, would they create as a global professional model what the, the, the tours look like now? Probably not. Mm. It's a bit complicated. Mm. I remember having a conversation with Ari Emanuel shortly after he'd bought IMG, and he said, so the guy who runs tennis broadly needs, you know... So just to be clear, he comes in from an entertainment side of things, Ari Emanuel, so... Yeah, yeah, but he's equally looking to understand all the assets he's Mm. got, and what he did, brilliant, in TV and film and whatever, I think he wanted to do this in sport. So he's sitting there going, right, so the guy who did what I did in tennis, head of tennis, broadly has six phone numbers, you know, four grand slams, two tours, Mm. and you have 606 phone numbers because it is so fragmented. And I said, yeah, and you've got to understand it all, and there are nuances and whatever. So to your point, it may be that it would be better for the public if there were a single tour, but this is where we've got to right now. We work very closely and very happily with the PGA Tour, and we make sure we work well together to make sure that the global product is as good as it can be. And who knows what the future would hold, but, you know, that's somewhere down the line, yeah. I suspect. It's just because I think you know, people would like clarity because clarity, yeah. people know what they're watching and yeah. they know, right, this is a big event. Oh, yeah. And I, I don't know what you think about the schedule in terms of the, the majors and the men's and women's side. They're done now. Yeah, for the, is that an area that you think could change? Or? I don't know if it'll change. I mean, it, it, it's evolved just recently, as you mm. know, the changes this year with the PGA Championship in the States moving from August to, to May. I mean, it does mean that it's a little bit more condensed. Certainly what you're seeing is the best events, the quality events, wherever they are, grow in stature, whether those are majors, Ryder Cup or other events. And you're right, it does make for a compressed schedule. For us on the European Tour, the fact that the PGA Tour finishes a little bit earlier to fit with the TV schedules gives us huge opportunity, Mm. gives us a large chunk of the year where you can take events elsewhere around the world, whether it's Europe or Asia, Middle East, South Africa, Australia, whatever. That's a good thing. Because there's an appetite for golf, and I agree with you, it could be made clearer. What do the fans want to see? They want to see their best players playing on wonderful golf courses, and they want to know exactly you know, where it stands. But I think broadly, the majors stand out, the Ryder Cup stands out, and people find their way to the best events. I think you, what you've got is there, is there is a targeted audience who find a way of knowing whether that's PGA Tour, European Tour, whatever else. You know, you only have to look at certain events. I mean, what makes a great event? You want to have great players, wonderful course, ambiance, experience, everything like that. But you look at something like what we were lucky enough to have with the Irish Open a few weeks ago in La Hinch, just before the Open in Portrush. It was a wonderful event because it was a great course. Mm. The local people in La Hinch embraced it completely. The event sold out. You had local heroes. I mean, they were out watching Pordrig as he led after the first day and Graham, Shane, whatever else. And then the best player in the field, John Rahm, shoots 62 to win on Sunday. That made for a great event. We didn't have every top player in the world, but it was still a, it's still a good event. It's interesting when you look at the, what the PGA Tour have done in shifting their calendar. About it. A lot of it is to do with, as well, the fact that they don't want to crash up against the, the big beast of American football starting and the big beast of worldwide is, is soccer, is football. Yeah. So how do you think golf stands in terms of its exposure and being seen by people? Because that is ultimately, I think, what, what is important responsible well, for... it is, but there's also another element as to why golf has this strength. So golf always, you know, no one disputes the fact that, you know, soccer is the world sport, and in the US you have the sort of the four big other sports they're interested in. But golf has always had this appeal in the sense that, sure, there's a professional display of the events that we watch but obviously golf also has this ability to appeal within business because of the unique nature of the handicapping system and pro-ams so in golf you can truly play against your heroes and so the pro-am takes on a, a relevance that is simply not possible in other sports you really can't knock up against federer you can't 
go and drive against Lewis Hamilton. But you can go and play against Dustin and Brooks and those guys because in a pro-am, whatever. So the sport itself, whilst it has to be as strong as it can be in the event professional area, it also has this ability to appeal business-wise, which will always put it in a unique position. And I think the game has been marshaled well by the powers that be to be more inclusive, to bring people into it. And so you're seeing different adaptations of the sport which are allowing new people to come to the game. Golf does not think that it will take over from soccer or Mm. NFL, but it will always, I think, have a unique position that will attract a unique audience. I look at it from a traditional point of view in terms of television, in terms of radio, but of course that's part of the story now. It's a really important part, but it isn't the whole whole story. No, but now in terms of social media, it's one thing that European Tour does very, very well. And and you would say, well, everybody recognises that it, it certainly beats the PGA Tour at that. In terms of using what it has and using its talent to promote itself through various different means? I think we've been very lucky. We have an amazing and creative content team at the Mm. Tour who are award-winning. And they've pushed the boundaries and they've done stuff that hasn't been done anywhere else. And that's because they didn't really look to be how are we comparative in in golf? Hey, how are we comparative not just in sport but in entertainment? Can we create stuff that's truly interesting, entertaining? And some of the things they've created are just brilliant. Whatever. It doesn't matter. It's golf. It's just really good content. And I think that's been very good because what we've been able to do, and that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the fact that, the, A, the players are so helpful and are willing to give their time to do it, and probably realise it puts them in a light that, that they wouldn't be seen in otherwise. And what it's, again, it's an area because, you know, the PGA Tour do a brilliant job at what they do. But there is space for a European tour, therefore, to go, hey, we can do innovative content and creative stuff. We can do different formats. We can look more global. So those are the sort of the, the areas that gives you the space to do it. Monty's Python. <laughs> uh, which was done almost entirely for you, knowing how much you'd have enjoyed uh, it, because I'm not going to ask you to do the impression, but knowing uh, that you do sometimes channel the great man. I mean, um, we knew you'd love it. So do players realise that they are part of an entertainment industry? Do they realise that more now than perhaps they did in the past? I, it's not just playing golf, it's, it's some, there's a role beyond that as well. You know what, I think it's a, it's a good question. I think they do realise that. I think certainly the European Tour members realise that from the, from the outset. Keith Pelley was pretty clear, you know, we're a content business and golf happens to be the medium. And, and that's easy to say, but you then have to go prove it. And if you have a look at it, we do ask our players to be generous with their time. And I worry sometimes that we ask too much of them, but they are incredibly helpful and supportive. It wouldn't happen without them. They are the talent. But they get the fact that if they do that, sure, it makes people look at them in a different light. All of the guys that have done this content mm. stuff, they get great reaction. They really do. So one, it's good for them, but it really is good. For us, the tour. And it's just good for golf. So to have people going, have you seen that thing that they've done? That is a good thing for the game. And genuinely, as we said, that that requires players, professional golfers, who are independent contractors. Every minute of theirs is their own. They can do as they will to give up the time to do it. And they do. And they are often very helpful as part of the process. I mean, this is a collaborative thing. You get ideas from them. And, and they've helped make it the success it is. Hi, I'm Jamie Donaldson, European Tour player and proud Hilton Golf Ambassador. Are you a Hilton Honours member? No? You're missing the chance for you and your family to enjoy better travel, promotions, unique experience and more. Sign up to Hilton Honours today. You're listening to the Life on Tour podcast presented by Hilton. Ryder Cup. Yes. 
How important is the Ryder Cup? It's sort of a semi-rhetorical question to the the success of the European Tour. Uh, it's, I mean, yeah, it's really important to us. You know, I mean, you look at the things that the great assets we have, wonderful partners. We have a Rolex series. We have the content. We have great players. All of that. But the Ryder Cup is the giant for us. It's a hugely important event in itself in the game. But for us, as as the managing partner, working alongside PGA's of Great Britain and Ireland, PGA's of Europe. Um, working with the PGA of America, it is a huge event for us. So that in many ways, a home cycle Ryder Cup generates funds profile and positions the tour in a way that keeps the tour going throughout the rest of the cycle. So uh, I was looking at the uh, schedule, future venues. The future venues, if you look at the American future venues, they go up into the you know, 30th century, just about. They um, are so much better organised. They're almost well, two well, decades ahead of us. They've got up to 2036. They have. They have. Oh. And we were, we were, well, we were a very long way behind. We've now announced, fantastic, I was delighted to announce that we've got Ireland and Adair Manor. But, so we're only a decade behind. Mm. But we, we work in a, different, in a different model. I mean, their approach is very much find venues that will host major PGA of America events, PGA Championships, mm. KPMGs and seniors events. Ours is a different model. You know, we, we've in the past had a, a bidding process. We now talk too strategically to nations and to venues that we think would be right for the venue and try and plan that so that we can work it into the schedule in the right way that people can build towards it. And so we're obviously building towards Rome in 22. We can now start to build towards Adair Manor in Ireland in 2026. And that will allow for events in the interim like the Irish Opens and other events that we'll create off the back of it to be looking forward to building tourism, building stuff like that. And then we have the option of looking at future venues. You know, we are already having conversations with a number of venues that could be possible for 2030 and 34 and beyond. So Whistling Straits in America in 2020, then 2022, as you mentioned, yeah. in Italy. I mean, how are things progressing in Italy? Because it's by no means ready yet. And so I'm just, <laughs> don't you give me that smirk. I, I, well, Truth be told, Italy has an in- immense opportunity to create something utterly unique. I mean, the work on the course continues, and I think it's a fantastic design. And when people get to see that, they will realise that a great job's been done there. And then there's almost a sense of the work going on now. You can almost learn from Paris. Paris was wonderful. It was like a benchmark, and you can learn from it and improve from it. But the opportunity to take an event of the size of the Ryder Cup to a city like Rome, and this is really close to Rome. You can See, if you slightly squint, you can see the Dome of St. Mark's from the course. And you, as you look across this 12th century castle in the grounds. But as a timing, you know, in the sense we got so lucky when we made the announcement around Ireland, it was just coming off the back of Port Rush and Shane had just done all of his wonderful stuff and helped you know, us get there. Italy, when we announced it, did we know that you know, Francesco was going to go out and become the first... Italian major winner, win five out of five in, in Paris. The timing is, is great for Rome. And there's huge energy and the Federation government working hard, venue doing everything they can to make sure it is every bit as, as good as it can be. When you look at uh, Le Golf National and France, whatever success they may have had with some players and, and likewise Italy with Molinari's and with mm. Constantino Rocca before that, yeah. these aren't countries where golf is top of the agenda. So how difficult is it to sell it to these countries as... Well, to, to explain to them just what the Ryder Cup is and how much it means. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good question because the truth is what, what was so healthy about going to a France and to an Italy is that you can work with the Federation and the government about changing perception of that sport in that country. So, you know, you could always go to mature golfing markets and you'd know what you'd get. And there are huge assets and, and benefits to that. But taking an event like the Ryder Cup to somewhere like Paris 
where in the end 43% of the crowds, and we had to, over 270,000 people coming through that event, 43% were French. And a lot of people questioned whether that would happen. They did. And the government and the Federation have just announced the opening of the 100th urban short course. So they're changing the game. There hopefully will be a legacy left. Same with Italy. You're hoping. You know, do I think that they're going to be more interested in golf than they are in football? No. But do we think that the, the combination of the Ryder Cup, what Francesco Molinari, what other Italian golfers are doing, will affect a change in how golf is seen in the country and how Italy is seen as a golfing power. Yes, that's the goal of, of trying to do that sort of thing. So what are the factors then that determine a future venue? Because obviously going back to Ireland, as you said, that's, that's been done. They're a, a sort of powerhouse and established mm. nation in golf. But you look at Sweden or Germany. Mm. So what has to happen? It's not just that they have had players who have been successful. It has to be a sort of governmental a push from uh, all sides to make it happen. There are broadly a number of criteria that we bear in mind when you look at a potential host country and, and venue. And we've done unbelievably intensive research following Paris in sort of blue sky thinking, specific research, brainstorming. What can we learn from this? How can we create what would be the perfect model going forward? And you won't tick every box, but you look at that. And and clearly, the date that we're in for the Ryder Cup dictates certain countries that are are viable. You need to have a very supportive government who are ready to embrace and build the infrastructure, do everything to make sure the event is deliverable and can be successful. You need a fantastic venue with people who own that and work on that venue, have the ambition to create something utterly unique. And all of that comes together with the experience that I've got, luckily enough, in my team of people who've worked on Ryder Cups for years, to create something that will be a unique offering. Now, you won't tick every single box, but you get to as many as you can. So, yes, for Ireland, we we had lengthy discussions over some time, which, as I said, came to perfect fruition four days after the end of Port Rush, when, when the government confirmed in their last cabinet meeting before the break that they wanted to support it. But it was a long time coming and we worked very hard to find terms that were right with both the government and the venue. Do you have future countries in mind already for those gaps, the the TBDs that we have? Absolutely. I mean, you know, there are countries who've shown strong interest in the past and weren't successful in bids, like Spain and Germany and Austria and others. And obviously, you know, at some stage, we would love to try and get the Ryder Cup back to the UK. And we had fantastic Ryder Cups. I mean, I loved Wales in 2010 with Monty. 14 was brilliant with what Paul did at Glen Eagles. You know, it'd be lovely to have one in England at some stage. OK, so I'm going to just list some countries. And you don't have to say yes or no. You can just sort of make a, a, a sort of noises. Are you sure you're going to do this? Yes. Is it slightly beneath you? So it's not. It's, okay. I think it's beneath you. It's certainly not beneath me. Yeah, okay. But you can make a noise. I've listed already a sort of pool that okay. you can pick from. So you make the noise. I'll, I'll make the noise. Sweden. Hmm. No, uh, Sweden, let's be honest. Uh, uh, that's where I've talked about the weather. I mean, you know, what well, Swedes and Swedish golfers September? have done. I don't know. Could it be? It could be. I mean, I'd love to. I'd love to. Uh, we'd love to do something in Scandinavia. I mean, look what the Swedes have done for the Ryder Cup. Look what, you know, what's happening in Denmark. Made in Denmark event. Wonderful event. Thomas has done that sort of thing. I mean, it, it, you'd love to consider that. But at the moment, the weather looks a, a little challenging. But you could, you know, you could work on dates. OK. Germany. Hmm. That was a sort of an interesting noise. Hmm. Interesting. Do, do they have the courses? I don't know. I don't. They, they do and they will. And they've got fantastic. They've got the players who've driven it, what Martin's done, what Bernard did before him and continues to, you know, winning at the senior British Open. I mean, they, they, you'd love to do that. And that's, that is an important part. It's great if they've got a bit of history with players and whatever else. And Germany certainly has that and has a fantastic economy and lots of brands who like golf. So you'd love to find a way of doing that at some stage. OK. 
my final one. Could I be less committal? I mean, is it, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not really meeting you halfway, am I? I'm not really meeting you Turkey. Ooh. Uh, sorry. No, because Turkey, that, that noise, I don't know what that noise meant. But, oh, Are they uh, in Europe? Well, no, but if you say on this side of the Bosphorus. Oh, uh, I see. Know, sorry. sorry. No, but I suppose the country okay. as a whole would... Does the, does the, the Ryder Cup have to be played? Because if you play European tour events... European tour, as we all know, is a bit of a misnomer, and European tour events go into every corner of the globe. But well, at the moment, the moment I think, I think that, that Ryder Cups are meant to be played on European soil. OK, so we have to end with the uh, Hilton Quick Nine, which we've been doing with all our uh, interviewees uh, this year. So the Hilton Quick Nine is just nine very quick questions, so it's just a, it's a sort of stream of consciousness, whatever comes into your head, first of all. Mm-hmm. So, number one, first hole, uh, first thing in your suitcase. I always have to. I put in my running shoes. I don't manage to do Munros like you, but I waddle around city centres. So I'll always put in running shoes, charger with an adapter, and I always panic about leaving my cufflinks behind. Okay, uh, that's a solid part. Second hole, favourite club in the bag? Putter. I am be- well below average in everything else. About the only way I survive is with, with the putter. Oh, okay, we'll let others be the judge of that. Uh, three, best city you visited? I love going to New York. Always have done. Okay. Uh, number four, favourite hole in golf? Well, an 18th at any course, because it means I'm closer to the bar mm-hmm. to, to get over it, but I would say of those particularly, I love the 18th at St Andrews, playing into the town. Wide, generous. It, it, I need wide, and I like going into the town, and it's wonderful. But I have only ever somehow fluked one hole in one, and that was at the 11th hole at Travaux's down in Cornwall, oh. so I rather like that one. Oh, that's a lovely course, Travaux. Yeah, like Number five, one place on your bucket list. That I've not been to. That you've not been to, yeah. I am desperate to go to either the Maldives or Bora Bora. They look great and never been. Okay, future Ryder Cup venues. Absolutely, um, you've, you've got it, you've <laughs> sussed me. <laughs> Question six, where was your last holiday? Last holiday was in... I'm going down to aforementioned Travaux's and Cornwall in a week's time, but last holiday was down in Portugal just after the... Uh, the senior, the senior Open. OK, there we are. Uh, number seven, favourite Ryder Cup memory? Favourite Ryder Cup memory? Well, as I said, you know, it was being with Monty when he won in, in, in Celtic Manor was great. But I, I can't, I mean, to go two weeks after you started a new job to Paris, to work with Thomas, who I'd worked with throughout mm. his career as a manager and see him fulfil absolutely everything he dreamt of, and to work with guys like Lee, who I've loved dealing with, and, and all the players... To be there on the Sunday night after what happened there. Almost all of Paris was pretty extraordinary. But, you know, Sunday night after they'd achieved all that they had, and I had actually managed... I'd, my wife had come over and I had my son with me and he'd walked around with somebody. It was, that was just a wonderful moment. OK, the Hilton Quick Nine is slowing down slightly, but we're, uh, we're, it's still a good answer. Though. <laughs> Number eight, favourite open memory. OK, I'm going to go back to post-Henrik Wynn, celebrating with him back afterwards with the claret jug and a lot of bubbly. OK, and the ninth, who would be in your dream four-ball, in brackets, dead or alive? Which is no, that's, that's dead easy. My four-ball would be, by choice, I love playing golf with my family. So wife Bex, Harry, Bertie, Phoebe, ideally me not playing, but maybe caddying or supplying drinks. But I have to say, that, that's... that's you know, family. If I, Rolex almost gave that to me at the Senior British Open because I was very lucky to play in their Rolex Pro-Am, which is on the Tuesday, and it was fantastic. And I got to play with Retief, who I had not played with uh, since he'd gone into the Hall of Fame, with Mr Tom Watson, who I'd never played with, who I think retired from his senior... Four days later, I hope that's unrelated. (laughs) And then, in the group ahead of me, heckling, was Mr C.S. Montgomery. So if I just amalgamated that, that was almost as good as it could get. No, you should have, yeah. Monty should be caddying for you in the stream football for all the years of your service. Do you think that would be good? He would, it would amuse him a lot. He gave me a lot of abuse.
I'm angry, Caddy. Anyway, uh, well, thank you very much. We've had detained you for far too long. You're a very busy man, lots of things to to, to weld. Uh, so thank you for taking us through your life on tour at IMG and now at the European Tour. Guy Kennings. Thank you, Andrew. Very good. Thanks for listening to the Life on Tour podcast presented by Hilton. You can get in touch via Twitter and Instagram at European Tour using the hashtag Life on Tour or on Facebook. Subscribe now and if you enjoyed the show, feel free to rate and review us on iTunes and Apple Podcasts.